The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you here tonight, week seven of our eight-week summer class on this really powerful, central teaching on the five spiritual faculties. It's just one of the central maps, the Buddha describing how it is awakening happens. You know, dependent origination, which we is one of our classes we do for Buddhist studies, is how the Buddha addresses the question, how is it that suffering can be a natural process? Because when I'm suffering, it feels so personal, right? But if I understand your teachings, Buddha, dear one, that seemingly personal experience of me suffering is just a natural process. And so the Buddha in that teaching on dependent co-arising, like how it is when the conditions, supporting conditions are there, there is this appearance of me suffering. And when those supporting conditions aren't there, that appearance of me suffering isn't there. And then, so these other maps, the maps of awakening, like the five spiritual faculties, the Buddha is basically saying, you know, how, because just like suffering can feel very personal, waking up and experiencing moments of real freedom and moments of real clarity and more exalted, enlivened states of mind, concentration, that also can feel really personal. Like, wow, my, my practice is really de- deepening. And what's happening to me is really great. And that's just going to be, that, that's natural for the, the uh, when the natural fruits of purifying the mind happen, arise for us, whatever that tendency in our heart to personalize experience of pain or pleasure, well, that habit is going to express itself like, that's happening to me. And can't wait to tell my friends about it, you know, or whatever. So that does happen, which is why it's really nice to have a set of teachings that can build the confidence that this amazing thing that seems to be happening to me through the years of my practice It's just a very natural process that can be totally trusted because when the supporting conditions are there for awakening, like the confidence that comes out of our experience and the effort that comes out of the confidence and the effort being directed to being present and using our capacity to be present to stabilize the capacity of being present, samadhi, which is inevitably leads to insight, the deepening of wisdom. The Buddha talks about it in the same way <clears throat> a big river like the Ganges in northern India, in the same way it naturally inclines to the ocean the mind that has this 
wise, you know, a, a sati awareness and the st- stability of awareness, it naturally inclines to nibbana. And nibbana is just that fruit of awakening of the mind, seeing things, seeing basically what it hasn't seen because the mind's been distracted and the perceptions have been distorted based on habits like seeing things in a personal way, seeing things in as being permanent in ways that they're not really permanent or beautiful or ugly in ways that they're not ultimately beautiful or ugly experience. And they're not personal, but that's how we see things. But that's habit. So the deepening of insight is really the the mind coming into alignment with things as they are, so free of those distortions of seeing permanence where there isn't permanence, seeing things as being personal in ways that they're not really personal, seeing things in this dualistic way of good and bad when experience is neither good nor bad. It's just this thing being known, this phenomena being known. And what I found, uh, you know, in terms of really understanding, because we're at that place now where we've been talking about awareness and getting clear, right, like what skillful effort, how to use that effort of abandoning and preventing qualities of mind that are not going to lead to present moment awareness and developing and maintaining the qualities of mind that are going to support present moment awareness, right? That's wise effort. So then we get a sense of what it means to recognize, just we're recognizing that capacity to be aware. We're not doing it. Like right now, because it's really helpful to do it in all kinds of moments through the day. That's what builds the momentum. And in a way, the moments that strike us as oh, this isn't the best moment for me to recognize awareness. I'll do it later, right? Those are actually the best kind of moments to recognize that capacity to be aware. Right where you think you shouldn't do it. That's what really builds momentum. When you have doubt or some certainty that this isn't the right moment to be aware. And to realize that thought itself is just something being known. That really builds the momentum and the trust in awareness. And the more momentum, you know, at some point there's enough momentum in present moment awareness that the momentum maintains the momentum. That's, in a way, uh, sort of a, my, one of my definitions of samadhi, right? When there's enough force, enough real devotion, like the heart appreciates, it loves, it it values present moment awareness, and it builds a momentum, so then that devotion, that valuing keeps the awareness in mind. The mind keeps remembering to recognize the awareness, because it's so valued, so appreciated, so dear to the heart. 
we're really, in a, in a funny way, we're, we're involved in a love affair with awareness. And the thing is, it's not so easy to depict, like, you know, let me show you a picture of my dear one, you know, and show your friend, here, here's me being aware, or something like that. It wouldn't really work. But we, we, inwardly at least, we want that relationship. Really sensing, like taking the time when there's some awareness, when we're recognizing awareness, rather, taking the time to appreciate its value. Oh yeah, this is good in all ways. This doesn't have negative side effects. Awareness doesn't have negative side effects. If, if whatever it is you're observing or no, noticing in your mind has negative side effects, it's probably something else. And the, the great thing about getting that is it really helps, because it's not just you know, from faith to effort to awareness to the stability of awareness to insight, the deepening of insight, to more confidence or more faith. It's not just in that direction, it's going back and forth. Because when we have a sense of what it is to be aware, then we understand so much better the kind of wise effort that supports remembering to be aware or remembering to recognize awareness. So, and how to use faith. So it goes, you know, it goes both ways. But what I find, uh, like in helping us understand that transition, because it's, it's a bit of a leap, what the Buddha says, that we don't, nobody deepens understanding, or nobody has, does awakening. Awakening is a natural process that just simply depends on the stability of present moment awareness. The secrets, you know, which are just whatever it is the mind hasn't sensed clearly, hasn't comprehended deeply. And I'm, I'm talking more in this intuitive sense, not in a cognitive sense. All that the heart and mind hasn't sensed, hasn't realized, will be revealed when there's enough stability of awareness. Because that's the very definition of the stability of awareness is that mind, heart, that can sense things as they are. And the, the 16 instructions in the Anapanasati Sutta that we went through in the guided meditation tonight really help us get clear how that works, why that is a natural process, how in a sense it can't be stopped. Like when the ingredients are there, insight will deepen. And it's, it all has to do with uncovering and recognizing and keeping in mind this thread of inner pleasure. It's the pleasure of the mind not orienting around sense experience. And initially it's just, you could describe it as kind of the relief of my mind not being pushed and pulled by my thoughts about things. So when we do the initial instructions, 
And by the way, I, I uh, included a link for the 16 instructions in the email that I sent everybody today. So you can take a look at that document. It's just a sh short version of the sutta, the discourse, where the Buddha is just going through the 16 steps. And uh, the initial part is, you know, bringing our attention to, in an exclusive way, to the physicality of breathing in and out. And uh, initially, like when we get a, some continuity, just being intimate with that physicality of breathing in and breathing out, then we'll feel the pleasure of the mind not doing what it normally does, worrying and planning and, you know, whatever the mind is engaged in most of the time, it's not doing that. Because somehow, one way or another, we've inspired it enough to remain attentive to this ordinary process of breathing in and breathing out, and to sustain that attentiveness, it had to drop all of its other activities, the planning, the worrying, the speculating, the analyzing, the wondering if I'm doing the mindfulness of breathing correctly. Like even that, there's no room for it when the mind is interested in that physical experience, like feeling the movement of the abdomen as it expands and feeling the movement of the abdomen and chest as it contracts, right? Just the getting interested in that physicality of that movement or the physicality of the touching as the air touches the nostrils on the way in and touches the nostrils on the way out. So it doesn't matter how you're feeling the breath. What matters is the integrity of that interest and the unwavering of that interest. Because that will break the spell, the habit, of whatever else the mind is inclined to do with its bandwidth. Because <laughs> it doesn't have any bandwidth. Because it's all being directed to the tracking of the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. And that's how we begin connecting with the thread of pleasure. Because that pleasure, even though it's, in a sense, pleasure like we know it, but it's arising more because of what the mind isn't doing than what it is doing. But it's, it's the abandoning, it's the distance from the you know, agitating activity, the usual agitating activity of the mind. What was that sound? Well, that reminds me of, what am I gonna do tomorrow? You know, all of that, and each time the mind goes to an object on that more ordinary level of um, awareness, consciousness, then it, it immediately has a job to do, right? It has to figure out what that object is. It has to tell it, it thinks, right? We think we have to tell ourselves what it is that I'm sensing. So each sense experience that comes into the forefront, because there's obviously many, many sense experiences in each moment. One will be predominant, and the mind will, oh, this be known, and it will tell itself what it's knowing, as if it doesn't already know, right? And then in that process of knowing what it is, telling itself what it is, knowing what the, you know, to some degree, how it feels to be knowing that, to be having this experience, and then we'll remember everything from the past that's at all associated 
with this particular sense experience or thought, which generally will become the next predominant experience. One of the things that arises because of this sense experience then becomes the next sense experience or thought being known, predominant experience being known. And that's the sort of general mode of being lost in thought. So we break that cycle, we realize we can have, we don't have to be dependent on the exclusive attention to the meditation object, we can have this more inclusive awareness of the whole body, and the body really in terms of the five physical senses, to whatever degree they're sensitive when we're meditating, and that harmonizing begins, it kind of uh, widens and deepens that pleasure. So then we have this embodied well-being where the mind has learned that it doesn't have to be afraid or controlling or in conflict with embodiment, with whatever's arising through the five physical senses. And that feels good. And, and that feeling good, that embodied well-being, it allows for a dropping in. And in that dropping in, what, what I mean by dropping in is the mind, the more, more subtle habit of the mind to be kind of an animal who's vigilant about threats, that part of the mind begins to relax. And as it relaxes, there's just this background sense that everything is just happening on its own. We're just there, breathing in, aware of the whole body, breathing out, aware of the whole body, right? Of course, we're also, to some degree, aware of mental activity. But there's just more well-being, and because of that, more trust. And because of the trust, that sense of, that subtle, pervasive sense of being vigilant, in a, like, as if a threat could come up, begins to relax, and as it relaxes, just because it's relaxing, then a more subtle truth, which is always here, which is, it's all happening on its own. Mental activities happening on its own, bodily activities, internal, external. It's just the dance, you know, of causes and conditions. And on some intuitive level, that's sensed. And to whatever degree that's sensed, there's a lightness. Because that sense of it all happening on its own, that is not theoretical, it's a felt sense, right? That sense is like parallel to the dropping of the opposite sort of view that I got to hold it all together. I got to stay on top of this all. So it's really related to that trusting. And so that's the joy which matures into a deeper sense of ease, which is really that maturing of trust, like that sense of a me who has to be vigilant and on top is getting replaced with a sense that it's okay to relax in these more subtle ways, more okay to allow. Because we're following that thread of pleasure, we're seeing that it's the relaxation of the heart itself that encourages the heart to continue to relax more on more and more subtle levels or 
the abandoning, the shedding of more subtle ways of the heart being defensive or armored or held. It all just begins to melt. And the key is to be interested in that pleasantness, that more and more subtle pleasantness. And then because of the more profound contentment and ease, then it's really a nice time that Buddha invites us to be aware of mental activity because now mental activity isn't sort of being used by the vigilant one who's trying to get a nice experience or get away from painful experience because the heart's feeling pretty content. So it doesn't need the thinking process, the mental activity in this hungry way to get away from pain or to get toward pleasure. So now the wisdom can observe mental activity, but from a different perspective. I don't need the mental activity. It doesn't need to be put to use to get me away from pain or towards pleasure. So I can observe it in a more neutral, spacious, dispassionate way. And it's all leading up, this is all like understanding how the stability of present moment awareness, how does stability become stable? You know, how does the stabilizing process move in the direction of greater stability? And it's really about the shifting, like noticing pleasure, this inner pleasure. It's really a pleasure of renunciation. At each sort of level, you could say, something more subtle, is being let go of. Like at the beginning, when we're being asked to be attentive to just the ordinary physicality of breathing in and out, right? we're abandoning, we're renouncing my the mind's devotion to knowing all of whatever it is that arises in my experience. So I'm letting go of that vigilance of wondering what that sound was. It all can be there, but now it's there in the background because I'm choosing, the mind is choosing to be interested in the meditation object, whatever that might be, like the breath. So each stage, that is the process of stabilizing present moment awareness. Realize that that letting go of the gross that allows the mind to open to the subtle. Notice that there's a thread of pleasure and as that pleasure becomes more refined, it's, in a sense, more healing. And wisdom will recognize it as very appropriate, very wholesome, what the heart wants. With, and, you know, it's like a wholesome desire. The Buddha, in one teaching, said, like, do we need to be afraid of this kind of pleasure? And he answered the question, No. I mean, it is possible to get attached to the pleasure of samadhi, but that attachment itself undermines the pleasure of samadhi. So in a sense, it's self-correcting. If you start taking it personal, that pleasure, and getting exuberant about how much pleasure there is, you will lose the pleasure. Because getting exuberant, getting identified with it, wasn't the cause for the deepening. The cause for the deepening is a renunciation, from a grosser renunciation to more and more subtle renunciation. So initially we're renouncing the diversity of sense experience, 
And that brings, kind of leads to that embodied well-being. Because now the mind is sensitive, is intimate with the bodily experience, but it's intimate precisely because it didn't feel like it had to do anything with sense experience. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches. That's what allowed for the intimacy, and the intimacy with the body is what allows for the absence of conflict. So there's a profound, can be a profound integration. There's a lot of therapeutic healing in that first part of the practice. Just feeling deeply, deeply like we belong, like it's okay for moments at a time, and sometimes for long periods of time, to be not afraid. Really in the sensitivity of the body, but not afraid of the exposure to sights, sounds, thoughts, smells, tastes, touches. And then the next part, what the, uh, the relinquishment, the letting go is really of uh, letting go of any dependence on our thoughts. It's like there's a sense of independence, like thoughts, is, are, thoughts are a tool to pick up and use when that tool is useful. But otherwise, that capacity to think and analyze and feel and you know, all the mental activities, that just can be there in the background. And because it's not, mental activity is not being identified with, it naturally goes quiet, or quieter. And then that allows for that next deepening where, you know, we're not, not just abandoning sense experience, the attachment to sense experience or the attachment identification with thought, but now we're abandoning or renouncing or letting go of, of any kind of selfing whatsoever, any sort of view, or you could even say meaning. That's the third set of instructions. And that deeply, that's sort of the ultimate stabilizing of concentration is the mind that's not dependent on anything. And that, you know, when I was giving the instruction about the space of the mind and appreciating, gladdening, valuing that space, that stillness, that peace, and really learning to trust it, and to sort of like leaning back, abiding or being the stillness. Because what we're realizing, what we want to realize is the mind isn't dependent on anything, doesn't need anything. And you know, the emphasis is on thing, anything. Doesn't it's there's something profoundly complete already. And we're, that's, that, that's the level of the pleasure now, is there something full. Last week, maybe some of you remember, I talked about that flavor of fullness. There's something that's full or complete or without a problem already. And that's what, in a sense, wisdom is keeping in mind, naturally. And that allows for some degree of release, like the mind will release any dependency. Now, there, the thing is, there's often more subtle dependencies that are 
that remain unseen. So initially, it releases the need for grosser levels of dependencies, like, you know, this is happening to me and I'm so happy it's happening to me, this peaceful sit I'm having. Like, that's relatively easy to see, like, that's extra. You know, personalizing how good my sit is going, I don't need to do that. Nobody needs to do that. And by just tuning in, this is the gladdening or the appreciating, is really tuning into what's actually relevant here. Well, the peace is what's actually relevant here. The stillness, the silence, the absence of disturbance is what's actually relevant here. Not that it's happening to me. So a lot of the grosser kind of habits of selfing go. But there's just likely to be more subtle, right? But the way they get uprooted is by trusting the stillness, the silence, the emptiness, the mind empty of self, empty of selfing, empty of any dependency. And then there's the experience, to some degree, of the mind free of selfing, free of that experience. And once the mind has that experience, to some degree, then it, it has, it, all of a sudden the path is much clearer. Oh, this is what the path, the Buddhist path is about. This, realizing this mind, realizing a mind, the mind, free of grasping, free of selfing free of any dependency, so. And then it's, then the next set of instructions is just understanding like, well, what supports that, the deepening of that experience? And the Buddha tells us, well, you keep the ephemeral nature in mind. So from that place of calm, let me just read this passage from uh, Ajahn Chah. I think he did such a nice job at talking about this point you turn the top two lights up about a third of the way? Great, thanks. So this is from uh, Ajahn Chah's book um, called The Collected Teachings of Ajahn Chah. He didn't write the book, of course. It was just transcriptions of talks. Whatever occurs in your field of experience is merely what it is. When something pleases us, we decide that it is good, and when something displeases us, we say it isn't good. That is only our own discriminating minds giving meaning to external objects, right? So we break that habit initially by just being with the breath, because we can't do that discriminating habit when we're tracking, breathing in, and breathing out. And he continues, when we understand this, then we have a basis for investigating these things and seeing them as they really are. When there is tranquility in meditation, it's not necessary to do a lot of thinking. This sensitivity has a certain knowing quality that is born of the tranquil mind. This isn't thinking. It's dhamma vichaya, the factor of investigating. Right? So it's a second factor of awakening. Some of you remember from our course on the seven factors of awakening. The second one is this natural interest. Like when there's awareness, then awareness allows for this discernment. 
It's that quiet presence. And then that quiet presence can discern the nature of phenomena coming and going. It can comprehend or see what hasn't been seen or comprehended. He goes on saying, this sort of tranquility does not get disturbed by experience and sense contact. But then there is the question, if it is tranquility, why is there still something going on? Because some tranquility, some kind of, uh, we wouldn't call it sama samadhi, so that we have this word um, sama, which gets translated as right usually, but better translation would be even, or a kind of stability of awareness that's in line with the way it is, supportive of seeing things clearly. So, because you can have all kinds of concentration, including a kind that puts us right to sleep. A lot of us have had that problem in some meditation sessions, right? Where we, we feel really calm, but it's just taking the mind right to some trance state or some sleep state. So there is something missing there. So Ajahn Chah talking about the appropriate kind of concentration. There's something happening within tranquility It's not something happening in the ordinary, afflicted way, where we make more out of it than than it really is. When something happens within tranquility, the mind knows it extremely clearly. Wisdom is born there, and the mind contemplates ever more clearly. We see the way that things actually happen. When we know the truth of them, then tranquility becomes all-inclusive. It isn't dependent on like in those first eight steps or even you know first 12 steps the tranquility the stability is kind of dependent on the step like what the movement from gross to more refined aspects of the mind i mean initially we're aware of aspects of the body but very quickly we start being aware of the mind And, uh, and then more and more subtle ways. But he's saying that when the tranquility, when the stability is there, and this is really the last four instructions where we're aware of impermanence, dispassion, the cessation of grasping, and the, the relinquishment of the latent tendencies to grasp, through the uprooting of the habit of taking things personally. That is independent on any object whatsoever. So in a way, you know, we might have a concentrated set and the mind might really want to abide in that really stable, retreated place. But then when the sit is over, then in a way we can go back to more of our wisdom practice. Just as we're living our life, just noticing, keeping in mind the changing nature. Like I mentioned this in the guided sit. Ajahn, uh, not Ajahn, but um, Bhikkhu Analyo, this German monk who I practiced with a lot, he sums it up by saying, keep calmly knowing change. So, I mean, we could still do our life, be functional, but even as we're doing everything, like even here, being here together on Zoom or in the room, we could be keeping calmly knowing change. 
the change of the sound of my voice, the change of the flow of sensation in your body, emotion, just the sense of being in the Buddhist studies class isn't a thing, it's a movement, it's a flow. It isn't a thing, it never was a thing. And can we keep that in mind and how does that change us? And what the Buddha is saying is that it's this natural process from keeping the change in mind to the letting go of dependence or dispassion to realizing a mind, the mind, this mind, free of grasping, to uprooting in the deeper way any tendency to go back to grasping. Because we can have a moment of awakening and then grasp it. This is going to really matter. I mean, now I can really handle the aging process. I mean, we personalize the insight, which is okay. But with a deeper insight, then even when the mind has a thought like, this is going to really help me in the dying process. (laughs) Wait till I tell my friend. But the mind, wisdom just sees that as the next thing to be dispassionate with, the next thing that's free of grasping, the next experience that the mind isn't dependent on, isn't sticky with in any way. So it's like uh, the release keeps releasing. I think I said in the guided meditation, maybe you remember something like releasing without remainder or without anything left over. Let me read a little bit more from this. When the eye sees forms or the ear hears sounds, we recognize them for what they are. In this latter form of tranquility, when the eye sees forms, the mind is peaceful. When the ear hears sounds, the mind is peaceful. The mind does not waver. Whatever we experience, the mind is not shaken. Right? So now the tranquility is more based on wisdom, the wisdom of not being dependent on or not being reactive to sense experience, as opposed to the tranquility being dependent on being retreated from things that are agitating. You know, like when I'm with the ordinary flow of breathing in and out, well, for me and for a lot of us, that natural process of breathing in and out isn't triggering, right? It doesn't trigger ancient trauma or strong desire or, right? It's just so ordinary breathing in and breathing out that it's not triggering. So it makes, for some of us, it makes a really suitable meditation object. But with wisdom as the cause for tranquility, anything can be supportive of that tranquility, the continuity of that tranquility. Because every even really provocative experiences are seen as being empty as self. And the body might even flinch. You know, we see something disgusting. There might be some instinctual you know, conditioned reaction to some sense experience. But on a more subtle, deeper level, the mind isn't confused. 
The flinch is just something happen, happening that's also empty of self. Just like the scene of the thing that caused the flinch is just that, scene. And then that emotional reaction is just that, an emotional reaction. But each moment, then for uh, someone with a lot of insight or a lot of momentum in the practice, each moment is empty of self. So you don't necessarily have to look weird <laughs> or look like a Buddhist to be free, right? Because the, the non-clinging is what is really significant, the, non, the mind not being dependent or not being confused by experience. And that's a couple more sentences here. So the Ajahn Chah asks, so where does this sort of tranquility come from? It comes from the other kind of tranquility, that unknowing samatha, right? So if we want tranquility with, uh, uh, that is arising, that is connected with wisdom, first we have it, you know, that's really coming just from this mental training. It's the same thing like when we have a lot of equanimity that's dependent on all the conditions being really nice, everyone's treating me nicely, the weather's nice, my body feels good. So I have a lot of balance, but it's a dependent balance. It depends on all the conditions being nice. But that more ordinary level of equanimity or tranquility can be very helpful because now when I feel that tranquility, that absence of being disturbed, absence of being agitated, I feel the pleasure of the balance, the absence of being disturbed, then the heart is naturally going to be interested, like, I don't want to lose this. But we immediately start losing it by trying to make all the conditions that allow that equanimity to arise, like glue them down so nothing changes. Keep treating me this way, you know. Don't, you know, weather, don't change. And obviously we start losing the equanimity, the balance, the tranquility. So, you know, it doesn't take long before the mind, wisdom gets very interested. Well, how can there be this balance? Because the heart really sees this. This is what I've been looking for. This non-disturbance, this peace. How can I have this no matter what is going on. And that's what Ajahn Chah means here, how that tranquility that arises from wisdom is deeply supported by a more ordinary level of tranquility. Just like we learn in doing the 16 instructions that we did tonight, we get this ordinary tranquility by training our mind, just be with the breath, just be with the breath. Train yourself. You can do it, Mark. Just get interested in the ordinary phenomena. Don't, if you try too hard, it won't work. If you're too complacent or lazy, it won't work. You just find that particular effort of being interested in a natural process of breathing in and breathing out. And you'll feel good because your mind won't be doing all the stuff that makes it feel bad. And you'll learn something. Ah. And then it's just a matter of like, 
that transition from the tranquility, the pleasure that was really dependent on this more gross uh, shift in the mind where we abandoned all of the devotion to the diversity of our sense experience and our reactions to sense experience. And we really narrowed what the mind was aware of and that had this nice effect. But then we start opening up but we're noticing particular things that are onward leading. And the key is to, to stabilize awareness. We need to be interested in that inner pleasure. And it's the inner pleasure that really will reveal what is the basic problem, which is this shift of view from a mind that is expecting sense experience to deliver happiness to a mind that's realizing that not clinging to sense experience is a much more trustworthy, liberating pleasure. And it doesn't, it can't do it just by understanding that intellectually, that shift from the mind dependent on sense experience to the mind realizing its independence from sense experience doesn't help. I mean, it helps to know that intellectually, but we have to realize it directly. So knowing it intellectually is helpful if it gets us to practice that transition where we uh, realize some sense of well-being from a mind that has some distance from being pushed around by sense experience to a mind that's really specifically interested in that pleasure of letting go. That the more, it really starts to stand out, the pleasure of non-attachment. And you see, any moment will do. You could be having a conversation with your partner and, you know, we'll be in a very ordinary, ordinary way bound up with our point of view or whatever, you know, not in a terrible way necessarily, but just in an ordinary way. But because we've been cultivating ordinary states of tranquility, we'll notice the unnecessary tension, the squeeze in the heart, the clench of the jaw, whatever it is. And it will, will that will be our, stukha itself will be the reminder of the possibility. And this is the deepening of insight, the trust, and knowing how to find this in any moment, the squeeze of attachment, and how seeing, knowing the squeeze of attachment allows for the release of attachment. It's not personal. You don't release attachment. I don't release attachment. Feeling the squeeze of attachment without judgment, with great patience, with great sensitivity, really knowing the squeeze of taking things personally is the cause for the releasing of the squeeze. There's no release without knowing the dukkha of selfing. Knowing the dukkha of selfing is the cause for the releasing, right? And so often wisdom, you know, and we'll talk more about this next week before we have small groups, uh, Wisdom is in the early Buddhist tradition is usually 
described as understanding the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths, which is just turning any moment of our life into, like, the only thing wisdom is interested in is squeeze and release. So that would be a really wise person. Everything they're doing, raising kids, working a job, brushing their teeth, making dinner, waking up, going to bed, everything is experienced as squeeze or release or some transition between those two things. Dukkha and its release. That's really the teaching on the Four Noble Truths in its essence. It's that shift of view that that's all actually that's relevant in our lives as human beings. Not how much money we save for retirement. Not even like really wholesome, wholesome thoughts. I can remember Jack Cornfield had this beautiful little phrase that I can't remember the whole thing, but the last line is, did I love well, or something like that. And I don't even know if it's his, he just repeats it at least. And uh, it's true, I mean, that's a good question, am I loving well? But more relevant actually than that is, because what's in the way of loving well is the not understanding squeeze and release. Because when we're in subtle or not so subtle experiences of squeeze, of contraction, we're just not capable of loving well. When we're afraid, when we're greedy, we just can't love because it, whatever to whatever degree we're caught in a squeeze, it's all consuming. So even if I'm acting in a loving way, in a sort of external way, what's really going on is I'm living out of that squeeze and all the choices I make are about getting rid of that squeeze. But getting rid of the squeeze isn't the way to get rid of the squeeze. Being intimate, knowing the squeeze for what it is. Squeeze. (laughs) That's what a squeeze is. It's just that. And knowing that deeply means seeing it empty of self. There never was, it isn't a self that releases a squeeze. There never was the self in the way we think. The initial experience of dukkha is, I'm contracted. I'm hurting. I'm all bound up, right? Isn't that our experience when we're hurting? We personalize our hurt, our suffering. That's not the practice. The practice is going from there, having enough tranquility, enough confidence that comes from inner pleasure to be unafraid to be with experience. Because then we'll have the kind of patience the kind of interest, you know, to be intimate with whatever subtle squeeze or contraction and see that that they're impermanent to realize, you know, this dispassionate relationship to all of the drama around joys and sorrows, happiness and unhappiness. All of the drama around happiness and unhappiness is self, selfing. So the letting go is, is a real step away from the normal sense of there's me who's trying to be free. And, and that we start showing up, even when we get a little momentum in our practice, the sense of stability is precisely because we're less, the mind is less entangled in the view of 
I'm trying to be free. I'm trying to be happy. I'm trying to get out of my bad habits of fear or anxiety or whatever. So this, you know, this faith and the kind of effort, it really brings us to this potent thing called uh, awareness and the stability of awareness and how it is, uh, it's really a different way of being. We're not somebody trying to attain something when we're being aware. And it feels different. It feels like an altered state, like that sense of an agenda. If that arises, that's just something being known. There's a kind of independence with the different phenomena, body and mind, when we're in that place. I'll just end with a quote from another one of my teachers, Saito Tejaniya. Because we want to learn about the nature of mind and objects, we don't try to calm the mind down or try to remove objects. We don't interfere or control but observe. Because we want to understand the mind and objects in their natural state as they are happening. This is right for you. Because it's only when we see them as they are that wisdom sees that they're empty of self and letting go happens. And that's the wisdom piece. And we'll come back to that next week, uh, our last class. Please join in for that. We'll have small groups next week. And uh, be interested this week, especially in the stability of present moment awareness and how the mind sees more clearly what it hasn't seen. The empty nature, the ephemeral nature, these three characteristics. And that's what I'll talk more about next week but the changing nature, the unsatisfying nature, whenever there's grasping, doesn't work. Grasping doesn't work. And the impersonal nature. Really that deepening intuition that even all my self-centered habits aren't very personal. They're there. Self-centered habits are as real as anything, but they're not really personal, our self-centered habits. Right? So... Enjoy your week of practice, everyone. Thanks for coming. I just want to say a word about uh, how the center operates. It'd be nice, maybe next week, somebody in the community, whether you're online or here in person, would like to speak for three to five minutes about your own understanding. But, you know, we don't talk a lot about money at the center, but we do ask everybody to come into relationship in your own way with, you know, given the amount of time you have in your lives and the resources you have and, your own appreciation, but to find some circle of practicing receiving the teachings and the programs that you partake in as a free gift and really let that land as a free gift be a cause hopefully for happiness, that it's offered freely because of everything people have done in the past, the center can operate this way. And we've been doing that for 30 years. And then also any way you feel moved to contribute to the community, to the center, to support the livelihood of the teachers, to help us pay for our our administrative staff, like Robin Major, who's our office manager, and Nancy Bowler, our bookkeeper, and Shelley and myself, who have administrative duties as well. So there's that beautiful circle. No one can tell you how to do it, but you yourself can figure out, like, what is the quality of that relationship? Have I learned how to receive 
in a way that is a cause for happiness in my life? Have I learned to give back in a way that makes sense? Obviously, some people don't have money to give. Some people don't have money or time to contribute. Right? But everyone can find some way where that circle, like even just a pre- deep appreciation that the place is available, or finding other ways to give back to the wider world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.